0: So now on Distinct Nostalgia, in tribute to the iconic actor David McCallum, who has just died at the age of 90, we're playing out an interview we've never got round to broadcasting. Recorded during the pandemic, my colleague Ian McNess in a wide-ranging conversation with the man himself. Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by M.I.M. More than a podcast. This week on Distinct Nostalgia, we're talking to another prolific actor from stage and screen. He first gained recognition in the 1960s for playing secret agent Ilya Kuriakin in the television series The Man From U.N.C.L.E., and in recent years he's played medical examiner Dr. Donald Ducky Mallard in the American television series NCIS. Notably, he played the part of Steel in the British sci-fi fantasy series Sapphire and Steel, opposite Joanna Lumley in the late 70s and early 80s. We are, of course, talking about the legendary David McCallum, and he's been chatting to MIM's Ian McNess about how it all began.
1: Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM, and I'm here with David McCallum, who is a very, very prolific uh, actor he has been working for, well, how long have you been working for, David? You, you, you tell me.
2: I joined I joined Equity in 1947. 46, 47, somewhere in there. I was working for the BBC. Um, I was born in 1933, so I, well, I'd be 13, 14, something around there. And um, my father at that time was working for the BBC with quite a lot. He was a, a violinist and uh, concert master <laughs> of the London Philharmonic. I mean, he was prominent, but he also was very friendly with a man called Laban Brown and Leibman Brown was one of those voices that you heard on the radio in, in where you are um, constantly, and I met Leibman Brown, and he very graciously uh, asked me to join the BBC Refugee Company to do sort of children's voices, and mm-hmm. at that point I had joined Equity, and I have the radio times of where the gods, who the gods love die young, or is it whom the gods love like? anyway. Yeah. Um, and I played one of the princes in the tower being uh, eliminated by the regal authority.
1: Yeah, and that's um, and you've uh, you've done you've done quite a lot of voice work since then, haven't you? You've you've done some stuff um, quite recently. Yeah, you
2: know, yeah, well, uh, you know, when I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Once It Crooked Band. And one of the pleasures was to sit and record the entire book, which is available on audio. Um, and the interesting thing was, as the recording was going along, if I made a mistake early on, the recording engineer he said, "Don't worry about that. I, <laughs> you wrote it, so you can make mistakes." And I <laughs> said, "Nope, <laughs> we're going to get it right." <laughs> well, no, and you want to get. I've done, done, I've done commercials and uh, you know voiceovers for. I remember that NBC did a series where around 2000 saying that the world is going to end, and Edmund Casey and all that. And I, I was seen walking through um, pyramids and tombs, predicting the end of the world. You know, and
1: there's mm. been
2: lots of fun things too. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you you did some. You played Alfred in Batman in in a couple of the animated Batman films, didn't you?
2: Yeah, they they
1: still call me from Warner Brothers,
2: and I go over and and do the odd voice. Um,
1: yeah. Even Wonder Woman, I think I did. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That that this sort of all. I think Bruce Tim is still involved with all that, isn't he? So uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. To, it's good to do just purely voice acting sometimes, isn't it? It's it's a lot quicker to do for a start, but it's also you can play characters you would normally not play. I'm well, sure. I, I,
2: I was at a party, a party one night for something that was either starting or finishing, and Arthur Kitt was there with wow. that gravel voice of hers, and she said to me, David, you've got to get into this business. She <laughs> said, it doesn't matter what you look like or how you feel as long as your voice is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's true. I mean, uh, it's like newscasters doing the news. They don't have to have any trousers on. No,
1: <laughs> no, indeed. Um, anyway, going going back, take, uh, taking this sort of back to the early days. Obviously, you were doing some radio work. How did you then get into films? Because you were in a night to remember, weren't you, and um, things like that. So, so, tell us about that.
2: Um, well, just to get it very quickly um, from radio, my, my the headmaster of University College School said. You know, he'd do better if he'd get rid of all these extra activities he's doing. But I was enjoying those extra activities. So I'd, I quit school when I was 15 16, when I matric- matriculated, as they called it back then. Um, and that allowed me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. I had studied the oboe with Leonard Brain um, mm. for some time. So I was playing the oboe. My father wanted me to go to Paris and study at the Conservatoire. And I decided, no, nope, I want to go on stage. Um, I'd already done some amateur theatrical productions and you know, you, you do these things and people stand up and applaud and you feel great. And I thought, this is really my home. This is what I want to do. And I was probably around 10 or 11 years old when I realized that, that I was going to spend the rest of my life in the theater at that point. Um, From that, um, what happened, uh, when I left school, I went to uh, audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, got in, um, and so I only lasted just over a year and a half. And then I left, I graduated, as they called it, Um, and I went to work in in repertory. And uh, I was with the Chesterfield Civic Theater for over a year, I was at the Oxford Playhouse. I was at the. I also played in Cambridge, you know. I've been to Oxford and Cambridge, which is sort of rather clever of me. Um, mm-hmm. There were various other places, frinton on Sea and such, and the Huddersfield. You know, all these wonderful old repertory companies, which I don't think exist anymore. So that was a great training. But I also realised that as a, a young man at that time in. In what was happening in, in Britain with the end of the war in forty four forty five, um, there were a great many people coming out and acting. You know, it was a pretty flooded profession. So I became a stage manager. I apprenticed myself to an electrician. I learned that as much of that trade as I needed. I was also from at school. I was a wonderful carpenter. I have always loved wood and doing things, and so I was a stage manager. So when I applied to repertories, I'd go in as stage manager, stage director, or electrician, and then play parts. And then the parts, one by one, took over. And the the combination of that was at the Oxford Rep with Peter Ward. P- Peter, we we closed the Playhouse with an outrageous performance of Treasure Island. And then I did my national service for two years. And when I came back, I was going to go to the Leatherhead Theatre. Um, I was promised a job by Hazel Vincent Wallace, which turned out to be a joke, which was somewhat upsetting. But it, I basically at that point dropped being a stage manager, electrician and became an actor. And that led to going under contract to the Rank Organisation with a film called, um, what's it called? The Secret Place with Belinda Lee uh, and uh, Clive Donner, directed. And and then it, it sort of began from there. I did a lot of film and television, which excluded me from the London stage, I felt, because, you know, the the world back then was divided into the world of theater and the, world, the electronic world of film and television. Um, but I did many many productions of enormous plays live on television with four cameras and that is an education unto itself there were some actors who couldn't do it they, they just found the nerves to just to be in front of the whole country <laughs> live and doing your part it, with so many people watching it was a little devastating for some and from then, um that went through, I started doing movie pictures, uh, um and then I did a film for John Huston in Europe with Montgomery Clift called Freud, which is a funny old classic in itself, because Monty was so wonderful, and working with Monty and, and, and John Huston is an entire podcast unto itself. <laughs> yes. But uh, at the end of that, I got myself, John got me his agent in in California, Paul Kona. And when the uh, they were casting the apostles for the greatest story ever told, uh, Paul told me they were casting apostles. I said, I don't want to be an apostle, but I'll pay Judas. And in a way, it was said partly in jest, it must have been, but I was whisked off. I wasn't needed on the greatest. We were doing the greatest. By then, I was doing the Great Escape. Um, and during the Great Escape, they didn't need me for a couple of weeks. I flew to America, tested for the greatest story ever told, and lo and behold, got the part and somewhat precipitously moved to California with my wife and three children.
1: Did you sort of make your home there permanently at that point? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, it's, it's the old short, it's a phrase, go west, young man. The opportunity to leave um, presented itself, and I took it. And I never, I've never, i never regretted coming here. It is an extraordinary place.
1: Yeah, it certainly, um, <laughs> it's certainly been very good to you in, in, in many ways. Just going back a little bit, because you mentioned the Great Escape, briefly what was what was it like working on that
2: the great escape again it's a whole podcast um james garner and myself formed a kind of trio on the great escape and we were together most of the time um it was at the time when charles Bronson was there he he met my wife jill and the two of them started an affair of which i knew nothing but um That developed into something where Jill announced that she was having an affair with Charles. Well, it became evident. And uh, she wanted us to basically stay married to me, but live with Charles. And uh, (laughs) that, of course, ended quite rapidly. Um, I also, at that time, had done a photo shoot. I came back and did The Man from Uncle Boy, we're leaping at it. During that time, I met Catherine. And we've now been together for fifty-five years. and been married for fifty-three of them. So that again was a transition period mm. in my life. When it you was... say this country's been very good to me, you know, this is a place where if you take opportunities and seize them,
1: you can succeed. We we sort of touched on the man from Uncle, so I suppose that's the next good place to go. Um, so how how did you get? How did you get the part? of Ilya Kuryakin in The Man from U.N.C.L.E.*
2: Well, during the time when Charles was having the affair with Jill, and I was not, at that point, aware of it, Charles actually was one of my closest friends, um, clearly, because uh, we were all together as a group. And he uh, took me one day to the commissary at MGM and introduced me to Stan Raw who created the man of the People, who introduced me, I think again, to, to, to um, Norman Felton and Norman had seen quite a bit of my work um, in Britain before I went to America. Um, so he was aware of my work and uh, I was then went back home and the next morning I was offered three things, a series on Alexander the Great, which I thought was a dreadful idea, um, a series playing a young Judas Iscariot, which was typical Hollywood thinking, but I didn't <laughs> think it was a very good idea. And yeah. the other was this thing called Solo, in which I play, would play a Russian agent.
1: Right. Um, so it was still called Solo like, at that point.
2: Well, that's what the book was called, what the whole thing was called. It was then, you know, Sam, I think, knew um, Ian Fleming with all the Bond books, and it, it so happened that a, there is a character, I think, in one of the Bond books called Solo. So that conflict eliminated that, which then produced The Man from Uncle. I have heard it, that this could be apocryphal, that um, when the series was, the idea of the series began, they thought about merchandising. and You know, you can have a gun, a lunch pail, um, a badge, a radio, you know, a or all the bits and pieces that went on the gun, and then said, oh, well, how can we construct something around all this merchandising? And that's when they said, well, we need secret agents. Going through a Cold War, why don't we have a Russian and American working together? It, it all evolved out of that. Um, in the first episode, I think I had two or three lines, and the only thing in the script about Ilya was he had a collection of jazz records under his belt, under his bed, but then as the scripts progressed, every single time there was a specific put into a script by a writer, we took it out, or else I took it out, or else um we made some sort of poetic reference, um quoting Shakespeare or Keats or Shelley and so there was this wonderful enigmatic element which grew about Ilya Koryaken. Because it allowed everybody to have their own image of Ilya. Because basically, just none of the stories ever told you anything. And that, in the way, became the success of that character. I mean, he was also blonde and... Young and debonair, shall we yes. say, very attractive and, man. And yes. when I, I look back; he was an attractive fellow back then. Yeah, I'm now three years off ninety, and I can look back on that with great pleasure.
1: I was uh, I was watching some clips actually um, online, and yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> you you can see the attraction. I mean, there was all there was always the sort of joke that um, Napoleon Solo always got the women, but there was some there was an aloofness about. Elia wasn't there who that uh, women went for as well, so I suppose there was always a little bit of a there was always a bit of a who, who's going who's going to get the girls sort of thing yeah
2: well exactly because nobody knew that that was my whole point, and you you make assume that he was aloof, you know that's you <laughs> because i didn't the, none of the scripts or anything I did would suggest that, but everybody had their own idea of Ilya hmm. And uh, it worked, it worked. Yeah. And then, of course, the famous black sweater, the black yes. polo neck,
1: yes, he got, became he iconic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the character, I, th- I think the whole series got more playful as it went along, didn't it, obviously? I mean, it started in black and white, didn't it, yeah. you, when you first started doing it?
2: Yeah. Well, then, of course, towards the end, you know, it's a satire. Mm. And so uh, any time you satire a satire, it falls flat on its face. And towards right. the end the the producers who came in um who will be nameless, probably because I couldn't remember them anyway but um they they began to think of hokey things to do um and so all of a sudden, a satire was satiring itself, and the whole thing just fell apart and I think Robert, having done the lieutenant series before the man from uncle um mm-hmm. and plus the man from Uncle, he'd had enough and his heart wasn't in it. He was more, he was very much at UCLA and he was writing books and uh, sort of writing biographies or whatever it was, the Kennedy's and such like. So, uh, you know, the whole thing, in fact, I haven't been told to this day that the show is cancelled. It, it just didn't, a script just didn't come through the mail. You know, through it, nice. Mess- message that's
1: well, you did. I mean, you did a lot of episodes, didn't you? You did nearly nearly thirty for the first three seasons, didn't you? So, well, well thirty for the season two and season three. It's a lot. I mean, yeah, hundred five. Yeah, hundred four hundred five episodes. I think. Um, how much of the that must have taken up a lot of a lot of time? I imagine you didn't have a time for anything else, sort of, throughout the year when you were shooting it.
2: Oh no, you wouldn't do anything else. It was five in the morning till sometimes, you know, eight, nine, ten at night. Although they had a very strict, Norman Felton was very strict in that the way he produced was to surround himself by the best. cameramen crew, everything. And he told them, you know, I I, I think once on the set, we were supposed to wrap by 18, it was 7.15. And at five o'clock, we still had three pages. And that was one of the rare times he came on set and said you have three Gert Oswald was directing he said Gert you have um until seven fifteen to do three pages I suggest you talk, stop talking to me and get on with it you know and that was it we we rehearsed for almost 40 minutes and did it in one take um the whole three pages and then that we a few cut-ins, so the editor could work. Uh, and we finished at 7.15, because that's the way things were run. That was the one thing about when I went on The Great Escape, and I was on this massive production, a really massive. Um, they built the camp and everything. I, I discovered the difference between working on a British unit and on an American unit. You know, nobody stopped the tea. Um, time and money were paramount. Obviously, taking second place to the artistic integrity of the film. But at the same time, there was just no bullshit. They got on with it, and I, the efficiency and the, the the power that they have of, of getting things done was just very impressive. it appealed to me a lot.
1: Yeah, especially when they were yeah, well, they yeah I mean they were doing a lot a lot. Um... And I mean um, Man from Uncle you always always, in the stories you were going to a lot of exotic places but you didn't actually go to many exotic places did you at all a lot of it was shot just
2: the rule is quite simple you take the centre of MGM studios you take a compass a pair of compasses and you draw a circle of a 50 mile radius in any direction that's the area in which you can work in which all of the extras, all of the people, the sound crew, everybody—they are working at at home, out of the studio. Beyond that range, there's a whole other set of—I think money, most of all—and locations, and all the rules change. This is back then. I don't know what the hell it is now. It's going to be might be different, but that was the thing. So, you know, Hollywood has done a very clever thing. Of, you know, you you shoot the um Sands of the desert with uh, Boyer uh, back in way back in the forties and fifties, and it looks as if they spent the entire time in North Africa, and they are in fact down on the beach, practically in Malibu, you know, back in the sand dunes. Um, you you put a couple of camels and and a palm tree, <laughs> and, and and they've done that. You know the the various Warner brothers. They have a whole New York City. Um, Universal, the same. MGM had all the streets, everything, all the location streets. And also, you know, they were doing shows, Combat, was it called? So they had uh, French villages that had been destroyed by gunfire. You know, there was, everything that you needed is within that 50-mile range. And uh, doing NCIS right now, they've now got computer graphics. And I remember one day I came in, And Air Force One um, was what we were working on. It was Yankee White, I think it was the first show we did. But there was a shot down between the buildings of the studio, and at the far end, where there's right now, there's a wall. The wall had gone, and there was Yankee White Park sitting right there at the end of the road. I mean, you have a, a, they can put an entire airplane in. I did a show up quite with Amy, um, when I was wearing a big rubber apron taking bodies out of oil drums. And there's a very high shot of the whole thing. And to my right in the water were four submarines. Well, when we shot up there, there were no submarines. You know, they can do things by magic.
1: Well, they did. I mean, back back in well, on man from Uncle, there was a lot of uh, back projection as well, wasn't there? I mean, so there was a lot of sort of yeah. stuff which, at the time, looked great and and you well, know, some of it. some of it, <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, And then they came out with this division, and I remember up at um, I think at Pinewood, they had the, all of this division stages. I don't know what that was, but that was a whole process that came and went quite quickly. And then, of course, Cinemascope, I mean, the whole change of lenses in films and everything, the wide screen. Um, if you go back to the original black and white movies like Whiskey Galore, you know, it's a square screen. It's wonderful. Mm. But yeah so different. I think the only thing that's really changed about the movie business is the technical side of the camera and sound. Nothing else has changed. You know, they yeah. still make the same mistakes.
3: Did you ever get the feeling life is getting busier and busier? Who really wants the hassle of doing the laundry anymore? And in these strange times when many of us are working from home, who wants the washing machine droning on night and day? If you're in the Northwest, there's a quality, economical, and easy solution you need. Atlas. Tailoring, alterations, duvet and bedding, dry cleaning, wedding and children's dress repairs, and suits too. Wow. suit you! <laughs> Atlas support both domestic and commercial customers and when it comes to washing your clothes, they'll even fold them for you. Far from laundrettes being a thing of the past, Atlas is the future. Atlas, on Wilmslow Road Rush Home, next to the Shell Garage and My Lahore. Call 0161 256 Four five four five. as well as amazing interviews just like the one you're listening to now the distinct nostalgia podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz oh i've never heard of it where listeners just like you go head to head on their favorite tv shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test there's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune but i know you're not going to are you Skippy,
0: skippy, skippy, the bush kangaroo, he's all looking remember that. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point, yeah, I'll go for that.
3: A brand new season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you.
0: Prisoner cell
3: block... Cell block B. Prisoner cell block H simply pick your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com or by messaging us on Twitter have a go at three British films just have a guess oh whistle down the wind carry on up the Kyber no this is rubbish I'm sorry no I don't know they're not bad attempts actually (laughs) and the two leading minds from across the month compete head to head in the final for a coveted distinct nostalgia mug it's almost like a trophy the distinct nostalgia mind of the month quiz got there in the End. <laughs> Coming this autumn.
0: Oh, it's amazing! They always are.
1: <laughs> so, what was what was it like working with Robert Vaughn? Then, staying on *Man from Uncle* for a minute. He was
2: a dear, close, and wonderful friend with a totally separate lifestyle. We, I think, we had dinner together once or twice. Um, he also had a health food restaurant that he took me to, and I was quite sick afterwards. We, we, didn't really, we didn't really... We had such different lifestyles that we didn't really meet socially. We would meet on the set. He was also, as I say, very studious and working on his thesis and this and writing books. And so, to a great extent, um, the choreography of the scenes and how we moved he would leave a lot of it up to me. Uh, he would have a tremendous input, but it would be very pointed and you know to the point. I was much looser and and wilder in those days. Um, mm. but we would the the, the yeah. combination just worked perfectly. We, we worked great yeah. together.
1: I think I think you can see that when you when you watch it, you can see um, the on-screen chemistry, and it's not you know you, you can fake that to a certain extent, but it's just you're just a wonderful double act no, i think no, that's no, what no. what i've you, sort of come across can. yeah and and i suppose i suppose you spent so much time on set that maybe you didn't want to see each other sort of yeah maybe you wanted to you know i suppose you wanted a bit of you know your own your own life at that point
2: when you're with people for nine or ten hours in a day you want to go home to somebody else absolutely so too. and then of course you know, the whole thing of, of uh motion pictures with exceptional case with a few exceptions. Um you you spend your life I probably met thousands of actors. And I would say in my address book there are three or four or five. You know, it's it's not you, you just don't get it's not a sort of chummy all get together thing. You do the show. There are intimate some people have affairs. Oh really? Yes they do actually and then at the end of the production everybody's gone you know it's it's all over it, it's a, it's a it's a funny lifestyle
1: moving forward in time a little bit let's let's talk about sapphire and steel which is um something that you know i i've actually got the dvds here cuz i love sapphire and steel i have to say um The first one I I, ever—I didn't see it until I was at university. Um, The first one I ever saw was the one was Assignment Two. It was the one set in the railway station. That freaked me out at the time. It still kind of haunts me now. It's it's one of those ones that people always remember because it was quite freaky. Um, What? How? How did? How did Sapphire and Steel come about for, for you? First off, a
2: man who is still in my address book actually. His wife is. He died last year. Um, Sean O'Riordan became an extremely close friend. Um, Sean was very much the kind of person that, you know, you find somebody that you can talk about um, the origins of space. You can talk about languages, books, quote Shakespeare. He'll come back. He was just a super person. Um, he came up with the idea of sapphire and steel and I believe it was um, um, suggested in the powers that be at the studio that it was a children's program that would go out at four or five in the afternoon um, Peter Hammond who much is very much is the writer and also with, with Sean created the whole thing um, th- they wrote it and i I heard a story that someone said to Sean, if you could pick any two people to play Saffa and to play Steel, who would they be? And so he said, Joe Lumley and David Callum." And said, well, why don't we call them? <laughs> and Joe and I both received the scripts. I think she got them first. And she read it. And then I heard that she was very interested. And I read it. And, you know, if you read a sapphire and steel script, you're going to do it, right? It's not something that comes in the door every day. And so we both agreed to do it. At which point, it was switched from four to five, you know, to more into the evening and um, to a more, um, a little larger. It was shot with, we rehearsed, you know, for a week or so. And then we went into a studio with four lumbering, the big old cameras. It was shot on Ampex tape, which, if you remember, was like four, is, is four inches wide, wow. and it couldn't be edited. We didn't know how to edit it back then. And so you had to figure out as a producer director from the booth, when you cut from the close-up, the long shot to this to that, and do the entire editing as you shot the film.
1: right So there was no that.
2: going back that that's how platform steel was done four cameras boom boom (laughs) you can do two takes you know I mean there's no audience you know not a lot of people hanging about watching but but that's how it was done which is so laborious and labor intensive on the part of the actors the railway station is my favorite too but the next time you look at it when we were on the platform and you look down to on the railway line and look from right to left You know, the buffer was there. It was the end of the line. But if you look to the left, it was just black. And I said, that's not right. And so I went away, and I found myself a six-foot square piece of white card. And I cut an arc in the whole top of it. And I took some safety pins, big ones, and I went down... Against the black drapes at the end, of, you know, down the platform, and I pinned it on. So when you stood on the platform, no matter what, you could see the other end of the tunnel.
1: <laughs> nice. I yes, was so not...
2: proud of that piece of cardboard. <laughs> I'm going to
1: every, every, everyone needs to look out for that. I'm certainly going to look out for that next <laughs> time I watch it. But that's um...
2: David McCallum's David McCallum's tunnel end. <laughs> hopping back to my days, my days as a prop man.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe that can be your, your the sequel biography or something. Um, <laughs> but I, I,
2: I did something. I did something odd with that. Um, right by the studios, ABC Studios, across the road, there were some tiny little houses with little tiny flats upstairs and downstairs. And I took one of those, a one bedroom. Modern, nothing. I mean, it was just, it had a stove. And I I got a nice, you know, Castle and I helped and we got some furniture in it. And that's where I stayed when I did Sapphire and Steel because it allowed me to walk across the road to the studio in the morning. And then at night I could get in my car and drive down to London when everybody else was coming out from London. And so I had all the conveniences of being in London without having to stay in London. And yes. uh, it worked very well.
1: Worked very well. But were you sort of told much about it when you first found out about Sapphire and Steel? Were you told a lot about it, or were you just sent this script?
2: Um, I don't I don't listen to anybody other than reading the
1: script. You read, you read the script,
2: people are coming there, and we have this wonderful idea about so-and-so, and would would you be interested in playing it? And I said, you know, send me the script. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not written yet. Well, I said when well,
1: you have read, read yeah, you've yeah. Doing perhaps, it. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps you and, should do that ever, first. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah.
2: Nothing ever comes
1: because it. Yeah. yeah. So, so you you're reading the script, I and mean, what what were you what were you thinking? Were you just thinking what what is the, What well, is this? I'm, I'm intrigued, but what is this? Anthony
2: Hopkins was asked uh, how did he prepare for a script. And he had this wonderful answer. He said, well, you know, I've been doing this business for quite a long time. He said, my terrible Welsh accent, but, uh, he said, I, you know, I read the script and I learn the lines and I go along and I do the best I can. And then I go home. <laughs> he just, that's how we, you know, as you get older, this is how you do these things. Yeah. You put in a tremendous amount of work learning the script going into the depths of the character as you absorb the words. And then, of course, once you have every part of that script in your brain, you now meet up with the other actors. You don't have a damn piece of paper in your hand where you do if you need it, but for other things, but you can now listen to the people who are talking to you
1: and react
2: to those people knowing the words ahead of time. Mm. Out of that comes everything that the, the writer uh, um, has put in, which is then added to by a good director who whispers things in your ear and says, you know, well, when I played the emperor in Amadeus on Broadway, I can't remember where we were. Oh, we, were in, uh, we went to Hollywood. We opened the, the Amundsen in Hollywood. But Peter Hall, Peter Hall said, he only said one, t- one thing to me the entire time. He came up and very quietly said, he said, don't be modest, David. And I suddenly realized what he meant. Don't be modest. And what he meant by that, you know, when you play an emperor and you're having a conversation with somebody, you don't walk over to that person. That person walks to you. You know, an attitude modesty goes goes out completely. You don't do anything of the social graces. Mm. But just that one little comment, don't be modest, David, changed the entire performance. Mm. So you, you have the script, you have what the writer intends, and then you have what you bring to it, and then you have that fine tuning by a good director. Mm. And that's basically what you do. It, it, there's nothing, no, nothing incredibly profound about it all. Um, uh, no, there are I mean, certain people that Daniel Day Lewis, I think, carries it to an extreme, which uh, is the exception that proves the whole
1: thing. I mean, uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but it was, yeah, but I was sort of thinking about that. I mean, obviously, we we as the audience weren't given very much at all in terms of Sapphire Seal, and if it, if they just turn up in in the episode one. They just turn up, and basically, we know they're agents who are trying to stop time breaking out because time is some kind of malevolent force and it's always trying to break out and wreak havoc and then you come along and try and stop it and that's all we sort of that's all we know and that your elements as well well, i mean did you ever know more than that or did you just
2: well i do now yeah because this is very interesting i hadn't thought of this until this moment Sapphire is still very interesting because it deals with time and space, and I've always been fascinated by space-time continuums and the bending of fabric of the whole of the universe through the movement of space-time and gravity, and I've been studying dark matter lately and how it's like 85% of what created the Big Bang, etc., 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 um, it's a fascinating subject if you're interested in that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, but, it really is. Yeah. I
2: hadn't thought of it, but sapphire and steel wearing was a precursor to all that. Um, it was recognizing that, the, uh, as, you know, Shakespeare says, there are things we know not all, Horatio. Um, y- y- you know, it's it's... I've always felt that the human mind is so constricted by the symbols that we use to communicate we have numbers we have letters and mathematical symbols and that's it yeah and when you when you come across something like the universe and the extrasensory perception and ufo's and all of the sort of what is meant to many people mumbo jumbo i think there's something out there that you know beyond us Oh, there has to be. I mean, just by the microcosmic, um, the way the world is, the solar system is. The fact that our solar system has a gaping black hole at the middle of it and what we call the Milky Way, and it's one gal- galaxy in a billions of galaxies, and that's mean, billions... I mean, it all becomes so ridiculous to think that our understanding of that size um, is restricted to numbers, letters, and symbols. Well, I mean, w- when are we going to develop these senses that Sapphire and Steel have?
1: Yeah, because they they could um, they could talk to each other, sort of. Uh... T- telepathically, and they could—I um, mean, you could, you could take things down to absolute zero just by touching them, couldn't you? Or, or steel could.
2: Well, it opens up a, an idea.
1: Speaking, of, just going back to jo- Joanna Lumley. I mean, did you ever sort of discuss with her what it was all about, or did you just get on and and do it and go? Right, we let's just, just got just... <laughs> on
2: and did it. Then we went and had lunch or dinner.
1: I, I think I think there's a beauty to the fact that you don't know what's going on.
2: Can I tell you something? You're fascinating, which has got nothing to do with anything. Joe Joe has a son. And Catherine and I have a son. And there is uh, us twins here in New York City, two ladies. One of them went to London. One dated Joanna's son. The other one dated Catherine, uh, my son. If that's not weird...
1: (laughs) That is weird. That's sapphire and steel weird. Uh, uh, that almost. was a
2: sapphire and steel connection if I ever came across.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it, was it? what was it like working with Joanna then? Oh,
2: she's intellectually just fascinating and stimulating and a wonderful person to talk to and listen to. Um, at the same time, she's divine to look at and um she's just one of those extra special people in this world, and her you know just going back over her Indian background and the whole thing and her books and watching her the things she does on television, she's just a lovely lady, lovely lady we still keep in touch
1: yeah she she always comes across as very very compassionate and uh, i suppose uh, and and sapphire was always the always the The one who came across as compassionate, or at least could could make people do something uh, through you know through love, whereas Steele probably could make people do things by shouting at them or or just being grumpy in some ways. He didn't. He lacked a lot of um, social graces, didn't he? And there were always some questionable choices, like at the that we were talking about the railway episode assignment two at the end of that, basically um sapphire and steel sacrifice this ghost hunter to to time uh, as an appeasement. yeah dear G- dear gerald yeah it's like and it's like oh right okay so it's like you're not you, that there is a nice aspect to your characters that you're not exactly heroes but you're not <laughs> um yeah there's a the, the lovely ambiguity and of course um at the end of the, the end of the series, you're stuck in a um, a motorway service station in space. <laughs> I seem to remember. Well, there was always
2: a suggestion that, that they might come back again.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. Um, they'll have to come
2: back as octogenarians at this point.
1: Yeah, I know. I know they've they've done some they've done some audio versions of them, but I, I'm actually surprised that they haven't brought it back on on tv i don't know if they've ever you know if you've ever heard about them trying to revive it but it's the sort of thing what with you know doctor who being so so big now i'm surprised that they've not gone right sapphire and steel let's bring that back we actually spoke to peter about um gentle touch because he used to write for that as well but we didn't we didn't get around to sapphire and steel unfortunately so i might have to um speak to him about that and ask him but uh, you know, I think I,
2: give it my very give it my very best. I will. Do.
1: I will. Will. Yeah. Well, I I think it'd be fantastic to bring it back. I mean, um. Yeah. Probably. Probably recast. But yeah. I, well,
2: I think it would be fantastic to bring a thousand things back.
1: Yeah. But
2: you know, it's, we're not in that kind of world anymore. It's different.
1: Yeah. It's you know,
2: line of duty on the BBC.
1: Yes. Um.
2: It's a different concept
1: of life you did a man from uncle after that didn't you you, you did a return for re, the return of the man from uncle
2: yes the w- wonderful thing the finally somebody michael sloan who wrote the, uh, the equalizer series and produced that he had a thing as you have the sapphire and Fuel, he had it for the man from uncle and michael wrote a script and he was at universal and Bob and I, we met up in Vegas, and we did the return of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. It's 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 okay. Um, it, it, um, the great thing about it was it put the idea of let's do a m- movie of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. to rest once and for all. And then more recently, with um, that gorgeous lady and uh, a, a, a different cast, they did a movie of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Mm. But they did the whole, I, I, nobody ever talked to Bob or I or anybody connected with the old man from UNCLE. They just went and did their version, a the new one. Okay. And um, it, it it hadn't, mercifully, it had nothing to do with anything we did back in when we did it. And mm-hmm. so that was the end of it. And then everybody said, it, it's the first of many. But I, I think the numbers um, of people who went to see it I um, didn't
1: uh, warrant that they would do another one. I well, personally, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I kind of felt like I'm not, I'm not sure what to see that, you know, you know, it's, it just, it just, it feels like an unnecessary sort of remake. So I suppose in some ways, when I mean, we were talking about Sapphire and Steel, maybe that would be an unnecessary re- remake. Well,
2: that's my point.
1: More recently you've done NCIS I mean that's one of the that's been huge hasn't it for you
2: yeah we're just about to start our 18th year I think I'm going back to do three to start with whenever they do go back Um, it all depends on the pandemic and the uh, unions and what the union rules are and how they set it all up but everybody's ready to get back and get going so we'll see but the 400th show is all about Gibbs and ducky because mark and i are the only two members of the original cast they decided to do the 400 show about the day we met um i've heard one or two little things about it i haven't read the actual script yet because of the pandemic but uh i think that will be a very interesting little show and to find out what happened and how they met
1: yeah, my uh, I was talking to my sister the other day and saying I was going to be speaking to you, and she said, "Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think he's about one of the few cast members, original cast members, because it's been going for like you said, it's been going eighteen seasons now, which is amazing." And um, can you can you see it? Can you see it going on? Yeah, I
2: can still the number one drama worldwide.
1: Doesn't look like they're gonna they're not going to stop making it anytime soon. Then, and they shouldn't. Yeah. What
2: it's a... It's a tribute to the writing.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you about Diana Rig because you worked with Diana Rigg. We're going back in time again. You worked with Diana Rigg at one point, didn't you? Um, yes,
2: yeah. but at the same time, I got to conduct the BBC Symphony Orchestra, which is the thing I remember the most about all that. Diana wow. Rigg, when I read the script, I thought, nobody can play this part. And not only did she play it, she played it brilliantly. And she's uh, as they say in the business, one hell of an actress.
1: It's been fantastic to talk to you. It's been really, really lovely to talk to you, David. Thank you very very much. I hope everything comes out all right. I hope you get to see your grandchildren soon. And um looking forward to the four hundredth episode of NCIS.
2: Yeah, not as much as I am. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's brilliant. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Thank David. You. Thank you. Right. Okay. Bye then. Bye. Bye.
0: MIM's Ian McNess in conversation with the legendary David McCallum and there'll be more conversations with some iconic names from the world of stage and screen in the coming weeks exclusive to Distinct Nostalgia just remember to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app and follow us on Twitter to be notified when the next program becomes available Distinct Nostalgia more than a podcast bye for now And that exclusive interview with the legendary David McCallum that you just heard was recorded during the pandemic.